Okay, we are ready to go here. Let's pray as we resume here this evening. Father, we thank you for every opportunity to see one another. And we say that often, but we do truly mean that. And for this time of fellowship around your word this evening, Lord, once again, we ask for your enlightenment. Uh, Help us know what is in your word. Help us believe what is in your word. And help us act upon uh, what we believe. You've been very gracious to us in many, many ways. And we want to thank you for that. And help us never forget such. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we completed our um, study up through the Garden of Gethsemane and the Lord's uh, praying there in the Garden. And actually, there is one other picture I'd like to show you tonight, which I don't have ready, but I will ready it here. So, the Lord has uh, finished praying, and we are now transitioning to his actual arrest. We are on page 203 on the right-hand side where it says, Jesus approaches the mob, is where we are. So, it doesn't seem, uh, this, uh, this incident of uh, Jesus approaching the mob and the mob falling to the ground is only in the Gospel of John. So we're trying to put these things together in the historical order. And it doesn't seem possible to insert the falling of the mob anywhere in the synoptic accounts except before, right at the very beginning, and or if we try to insert it at the end of the synoptic accounts, uh, that doesn't that doesn't work either because that would be after Jesus has addressed the addressed the mob. So this falling to the ground when the mob uh, when Jesus approaches the mob happens right at the beginning of when Judas shows up. So when Judas shows up, it's right. Right around then is when all of this takes place. And so that's the order that we're going to go in, go with. So um, we will start here in John 8, 18, verse 3 then. And so then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They said, They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And then John immediately proceeds to Peter's use of his sword. Then Simon Peter, 
having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant. Now, between verses 9 and 10, there's a significant amount of detail in the synoptics. So we're going we're gonna to go first through John down to verse 9, and then we'll go over to the synoptic gospels and fill in what happened in between verses 9 and 10 that John, John doesn't cover. So that, that's how we're going to be going here tonight. So back up here in verse 3, some things we ought to explain. The term used here for a detachment of troops. This is a reference to Roman troops. So um, a detachment of troops indicates that a Roman cohort consisting of up to a 1,000, but often 600 soldiers. That's what a Roman cohort or detachment was. That doesn't necessarily mean that they brought all 600 Roman soldiers with them that evening. It just means that this particular Roman detachment or cohort was assigned to this particular task. So we really don't know how many Roman soldiers were there However, um, remember when Paul was escorted by the Roman soldiers out of Jerusalem when they realized that there was a plot by the Jews to kill Paul, and Paul was in the custody of the Romans, and they protected their prisoners, and they escorted Paul out of Jerusalem, Luke tells us there was 470 Roman soldiers that escorted Paul out of Jerusalem. So those are some numbers we have. The Roman uh, cohort or detachment is involved in Jesus' arrest. So, So what does that tell you? It tells you that Pilate would have had to order this, okay, Pilate would have had to have those men mobilize and come out that Thursday evening. So in order for Pilate to know that, obviously the chief priests and the, and the scribes and those folks have been interacting with Pilate as well as Judas. So they've got this all figured out. So Pilate orders this, this Roman detachment of soldiers. And so... <clears throat> uh, the leading Jews would have informed Pilate that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was claiming to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews. That would get Pilate's attention because of what? Why would that get Pilate's attention? Right. Since, since this man is claiming to be a king and the king of the Jews, he could be a rival to Caesar or cause an insurrection and throw off Roman rule of Judea. So that would get Pilate's attention. Just like 30 years earlier when the wise men showed up from the east and they were walking around the city saying, where, you know, where is he who is uh, king of the Jews? It got Herod's attention, didn't it? So much so that he brutalized all the infant boys from two years two years. Um, old and younger, he had them all executed. Okay, so, so it's a possible threat to Caesar, and the local governors were responsible to just keep the peace. So, 
So Pilate, of course, we're going to see when Pilate interviews Jesus during his trial, what are we going to see? Pilate is going to try to find out whether this man really is a threat to the empire or not. And of course, Pilate's going to conclude that Jesus isn't a threat. Even though he claims to be a king, Jesus says, don't worry about it, Pilate. My kingdom's not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would fight. And uh, we're going to see tonight that Jesus is going to tell his servants not to fight <laughs> with the sword. And so that's that's kind of the context here of what's going on when Pilate orders uh, orders these troops out. Now the the officers from the chief priests. This would be the temple, the the temple uh, the temple police. These are the guys that have tried to arrest Jesus multiple times. And then the Pharisees. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so there's a whole wide range of people here, and. Um, so the other thing is, during the feast, this nationalistic fervor could run very high, and soldiers were stationed in a fortress. It's interesting, the Romans. Uh, here's the temple area. We've looked at this diagram quite a bit. And the Romans built a fortress right up against the wall of the temple. It's called the Antonii. Uh, Antonii, Antonia fortress, and and this is where they this is where those troops came from, and they built and this was inhabited by Roman troops. And during a feast, they would fill this place up with Roman soldiers, because there's such nationalistic fervor that could break out in Jerusalem. They wanted to be ready to squelch to squash any uh, re- any rebellions. And they could actually, from the fortress, they could actually enter the temple courts. And so these troops that evening were called up Thursday night to come out and assist in the arrest of this potential insurrectionist, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, so, so... Judas leads the mob, having lanterns, torches, and weapons, to Gethsemane because uh, Judas knew that's where Jesus often would be. So Jesus obviously is not avoiding them. He would go some other place if he was trying to avoid them. So John tells us, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come to him. That's That's... Typical John, isn't it? John John kind of gives us what's going on in Jesus' mind. And here's another, another one of those statements. John knows how Jesus is thinking at this moment, knowing that all things that would come upon him went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? Um, <clears throat> Jesus, Judas may have approached Jesus and kissed him at the same time. Uh, you know, trying to put John and the, and the synoptics together is, is, is a little bit difficult, but it, it may be right at this same time as Jesus approached the crowd and said, whom do you seek? G- Judas himself may have come up right, right at that same time. Uh, it, we can't get any, any more precise, uh, precise than that. 
but John always shows Jesus is still in charge of all the events that are unfolding that evening. So they don't have to go searching around for Jesus. He knows they're coming. You would see the lanterns and the noise and all of that. And he goes out, which probably means uh, went forward or could be translated went out, meaning he went out of the Garden of Gethsemane. The garden was walled. We talked about that last, uh, uh, last, um, last week. So... Uh, and he asked the question, whom, whom, are you, whom are you seeking? Now, when, when, when Jesus says, I am he, um, before we get to the, everybody falling down for a minute, the soldiers in the temple police must have been surprised. Why? Because they had tried to arrest him multiple times before. And when we, you know, when we read through the Gospel of John, we see there were, there were multiple times on other occasions when they were sent to arrest him or when he avoided the crowd. And, and so he, he always escaped or disappeared. They couldn't arrest him. But this time when they arrive, he just presents himself to them. So this is different. His behavior is very different. You know, they are prepared at least for a search to track down the insurrectionist and likely some type of fight with his followers. They're they're prepared for this. But instead, the insurrectionist comes up out of the garden and initiates the interchange. And he makes their task very simple. No weapons will be raised. Whom are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they say, I am he. They will be able to go home, back home to their, back home that evening. <laughs> They're not going to be up all evening and go back to bed. You know, the Roman soldiers are saying, boy, this one, this mission was easy. We're going to get back in our beds here. And maybe before midnight, we're done. You know, the, turn them over to the chief priest and the temple police can handle it from here. We don't need a, a Roman a battalion of troops to handle this situation. You know, we're, we're out of here. So, um, Uh, Very good. It's not going to be a long night. Now, when we first read John's Gospel, we are not expecting what happens. If you're not familiar with the Gospel, you're surprised when you read it. Whom are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Now, when he said to them, I am he, or I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So, J.R. Michaels makes the point, just to make sure we perceive the connection, John repeats the two words, then, as he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. You see how John does that. Um, now, okay, he sa- Jesus said to them, I am. And there was no he in the text there. We've talked about that before. Jesus said to them, I am. Now when he said to them, I am. Okay, And so John specifically says, when he said to them, I am. Focusing us on that phrase of what he said. Okay. 
they drew back and fell to the ground. So, um, <clears throat> though we are surprised when we read this the first time, John has skillfully prepared us for it by already including a number of Jesus' I am statements, hasn't he? Especially in John chapter 8. You know, what we have here is consistent with the highest Christology as expressed in John 8.58 and coming after the resurrection of Thomas's confession. So, I think it is proper, I think Michael's is correct, that the author of John is expecting us to associate Jesus' saying, I am here, and all of them falling back, with the same way that Jesus says it in John 8.58 and John 8.26 and a number of other places. Um, <clears throat> John has built his gospel to help us make, make those connections. Now, it's interestingly, John says one other thing. John remembers Judas standing by. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, I am he. And before uh, John tells us that they all fell down, John makes this note. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. So you've got this mob there, and then you've got Jesus here. I don't know where the disciples are yet. They're barely woken up from sleep because when we go to Matthew, remember they're sleeping? And so when we get to Matthew, Jesus is waking them up and says, Behold, my betrayer is at hand. And so he rouses, all, he rouses them from sleep. They're waking up from sleep. Jesus goes out to the mob and says, whom do, whom do you seek? That, that's how fast it is, it is unfolding here. And John just points out, and Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them, with, with the mob. So, uh, G, G, uh, John remembers this scene. You know, John can just see it. He's got a memory of this scene, and he can just see Judas, Jesus with his disciples, the disciples kind of waking up over here, and where is Judas? He's obviously on the wrong side, isn't he? He's no longer on this side with Jesus and the disciples. John says he's with them, (laughs) and uh, he's the traitor, and he's with them. And then John continues, but it's interesting that John uh, made a point to insert that, isn't it, right there, to give us this, this picture. And so then they all drew back and they fell. Um, so <clears throat> up to perhaps six, up to 600 soldiers, temple police, and religious leaders, they draw back and they fall to the ground. Now, falling to the ground is reg- regularly a reaction to divine revelation. And we could turn to 11 references in our Bibles where people fall to the ground when exposed to God's greatness. 
There's 11 references of that. That is the response when you're exposed to a, a revelation of God. Uh, and and uh, we fall uh, to the ground. And certainly that is what, what's occurring here. Um, the striking response displays the powerlessness of Jesus' enemies when confronted with the power of God. It's like when Jesus commands the legion of demons out of the Gadarenean demoniac, when Jesus just issues the command, and all the, that legion of demons uh, has to exit the Gadarene demoniac. It's a display of divine power, and the mob, uh, the mob falls uh, to the ground. Um, J.R. Michaels quote the effect of telling the, the effect of them all falling backward within John's gospel is to put a very large exclamation point after Jesus' words spoken eight chapters later. Eight chapters earlier, I'm sorry, spoken eight chapters earlier. Quote, I lay down my life that I may receive it back again. No one took it away from me, but I lay it down on my own. No one, not even 600 Roman soldiers plus officers, both from the chief priests and from the Pharisees, can take Jesus' life from him. The authority to lay it down, like the authority to receive it back, is his and his alone. This he will do freely and voluntarily for the sheep, as he will quickly demonstrate. So uh, there's your exclamation mark that he is going to lay his life down on his own. Uh, He's also going to have to tell Peter, could I not now call 12 legions of angels? (laughs) He's okay, because he's also going to tell Peter that obviously he could do that also. So, So Jesus did not die as a martyr. You need to really keep that straight. He did not die as a martyr. Martyrs don't have choices whether to lay their life down or not. Jesus died as a voluntary sacrifice. He offered himself as a voluntary sacrifice and gave his life. His life was not taken. He gave it. Well, as Jesus stands there looking at them as they get up off the ground and regain some composure, John continues, then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And Michael says, "Um, there is more than a touch of comedy here. As if nothing has happened, Jesus asked the Roman soldiers and the Jewish officers lying on the ground the same question he asked before. So again, he asked, whom are you seeking? As if, you know, as if nothing, nothing has happened. Evidently, picking themselves up and regaining their composure, they give the same answer. Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, now Linda, you see, they're seeking not Jesus Christ, right? They're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. 
okay, because they don't believe Jesus is the Christ. So this is an example we were talking about last week where they're using his, his human birth name. We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, people were normally referred to that way. It was where you were born. You didn't have a first and a last name like we do. You had your name and the place of your birth or, or the son of your father. Okay, so either the place of your birth and or the son of, the son of your father. So they're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, though that isn't where he was actually born, but that's what they thought. Okay, He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. So uh, that's whom they are seeking. Uh, lost my place in my own notes here. <clears throat> okay. Jesus responds a second time, I have told you that I am he. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, let's get on with it. You know, I've told you, I've told you that I am he, okay? I'm the one you're seeking. And it's another one of the ways that Jesus speaks this whole evening. Even when he said to Judas, what you do, go do quickly. In other words, get on with it, you know, get on with it. And I, I sense that in his words here. It's another, let's, let's keep going. Let's get this thing going. Uh, this time, they are allowed to remain standing, since they are, and since they are seeking Jesus, Jesus directs them, Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. And the these meaning his, most likely his disciples, now, perhaps the disciples breathe a sigh of relief at this point. I don't know. As they look on and wonder, what is Jesus going to do now? And will, and will we all be arrested or not? So, Jesus says, let these go away. And what Jesus does calms their fears, right? Let these go away. Now, we know from the synoptics that the disciples did not flee at this moment. They didn't flee at this time. Jesus is engaged with the mob, probably the chief priest, uh, maybe, or you know, whoever the chief priest sent, and the main officers and officers of the temple. Um, so, um, but even though he says, let these let these go their way. We know they, they didn't leave at that point. The disciples didn't scatter at that point. We'll see that a little bit later. Um, they scatter after Jesus finishes addressing the crowd. So John interrupts the narrative here and provides some explanation of, G, of Jesus' direction. Notice what he says. Uh, let these go away. Okay. All right, therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. And verse 9, he said that, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you have gave me, of those whom you gave me, I have lost nothing. Uh, That's an interesting reference. What is that referring to? What saying is he referring to? 
Anybody? Mark? His disciples? Yeah. And when 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 was when was this the saying said? What's that? Ah, what that's right. It's that's one of the places in John chapter seventeen when Jesus prays, he says, I have lost none of those that you've given me. So this saying oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> that the saying might be fulfilled. Um, he, he said, let them go, that the saying may be fulfilled which he spoke. This saying, I'll get it here. of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. He said that just a few hours earlier in John chapter 17. Where else does he say that? How well you know the Gospel of John? It's famous places. In John chapter 6. And I think he also says it maybe in John 10. He certainly says it once or twice in John 6. He says it in his prayer in John 17. So what's really somewhat interesting here is even the sayings that Jesus says have to be fulfilled. That's that's the point to make. Jesus has made these statements and he has to fulfill them. You know, we just, we, you know, we love the sovereignty of God, right? We just lean back and say, all right, God's sovereignty is going to take care of me, right? And it, well, for Jesus is not quite like that because he's got to make it happen. He's got to make all that Old Testament prophecy happen. It doesn't just happen. He has to do it. He has to make it happen. And he's very conscious of that. He's going to be conscious of that on the cross. He has to, he has to make it happen. And, and, and John is aware that Jesus is making this happen. Even in his saying... Let these go away so that they're not arrested or they're not executed, whatever. Jesus is making it happen. He has to make those things happen. So just just think about that. Uh, you know, as you read your Gospels, think about it from Jesus' perspective. Okay? Um, and that that will that will impress you and and uh it, and have a good effect um, <clears throat> on your minds. So Jesus, yeah, I say it in my notes, Jesus not only fulfills the words of the prophets, but his own words must be fulfilled. Now at this point, Peter, uh, John proceeds directly, verse 9 and 10, John proceeds directly to Peter's drawing his sword, but from the synoptic gospels, we know we know that isn't we know that isn't what happened and the material that john includes and leaves out seems to indicate that he has read at least the synoptic one of the synoptic gospels i mean we're not certain about that but john leaves some pretty critical stuff out 
but he doesn't need to put it in because perhaps he already knows it's in the Synoptic Gospels. You know, we're going to get there. We're not, we're that's, we're stopped at verse nine, but I, I, right now I'm, I switched from talking about the events to the text of scripture. I'm just pointing out to you, there's a lot of study about these four gospels. So I'm switching now to talk about the text and to kind of show us what John does and doesn't do. So, you know, there's a lot of discussion. Well, why does John leave things out? Um, and so forth. And I'm just pointing out to you this places where there are gaps that he intentionally leaves out. And one of the explanations of that is, is John wrote his gospel last, didn't he? I think that is still true, that John's the last gospel to be written, so the other gospels are already in circulation. So... Uh, maybe that's why John leaves it out. Um, there's one other interesting thing I'll say, and then I'll I'll move on. And um, that is, John doesn't necessarily need the synoptics because John's a first-hand witness, isn't he? Right. So I don't know. We're just not certain, but it's, it's good to think about uh, how the text has been put together. Uh, so one of the reasons we might say John is not dependent on the synoptics, he really doesn't look like that, because can you find a single quote in the Gospel of John that is word for word the same as in the Synoptic Gospels? I don't think you can, you see. But if we play that same exercise with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what do we discover? We discover quotes, sentences that are word for word for word absolutely identical. When we, when we do that with the Synoptic Gospels, okay? So where we definitely see a dependence, some dependence between the three Synoptic Gospels. They're dependent on one another. Who's dependent on who is not quite always clear. There's a lot of theories, you know. Is Matthew dependent on Mark? Or is Luke dependent on Matthew? Is Matthew primary and, and Luke and Mark dependent on Matthew? That, that kind of discussion, uh, I'm, I've kind of slid us into that now. I just, just want, want to expose you guys to those, those kinds of things about the text of our Gospels itself. You can't, you can't be too familiar with the text of, of these Gospels. So, Okay, so we are going to, we're, since we're trying to go in chronological order here, we're going to now go over to the Synoptic Gospels and go to Matthew 26 uh, in verses 47 through 50. Uh, all right, Matthew 26. See, and while he was still speaking... 
that is waking up the disciples. See that? I mentioned that earlier. Um, they were asleep. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, uh, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Okay, so he, they've just woken up. He's woken them up, and Judas is there. Uh, and while he was still speaking, behold, while he was still speaking, what he's just said, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude of swords and clubs, the chief priests and elders of the people, now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. So uh, somewhere right around there is when they all fell down on the ground, or, or as we've just been looking at. Okay, so <clears throat> Judas appears leading the mob to find Jesus. Judas and the chief priests had a plan to ensure they would lay hold of the right man. It was dark, and they didn't have photos. <laughs> and uh, these men were probably all pretty much dressed alike, and it may not be that easy to identify which one of them is actually Jesus. Humanly speaking, he really didn't look any different from the rest of them, did he? Right? There was not a halo glowing over his head so they could identify him. He And it's dark, and so they realize, you know, if people start scattering or this turns into a riot, we really need some means of knowing who our man is. And so... Um, Maybe that was actually Judas's idea. I think one of the texts makes it sound like it was Judas's idea that they would have a plan uh, as to who in the world they are to arrest here in the dark. When Jesus was teaching in the temple, it was pretty easy to know which fellow was was Jesus because of his teaching publicly in the temple and so forth. But not here late Thursday night. So they develop that, that plan. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Uh, Greetings, Rabbi. Surely a mockery. Judas had given up on following this teacher. No more, rabbi meant teacher, okay? Um, he had given up on following this teacher, and for whatever motives, he was even willing to turn Jesus, this rabbi, over to, the, to those whom he knew would most likely execute him. Um, Judas obviously knew that. He obviously knew the Pharisees and the chief priest and the Sanhedrin wanted to kill him and execute him. Jesus is, Judas is fully aware of that. Uh, and and he, turns, he turns him over. Um, <clears throat> what was to be an expression of affection, the kiss, is turned into an act of betrayal. Uh, Greetings, Rabbi, and then he kissed him. Jesus responds, 
according to uh, Matthew here, uh, right, let me, yeah, verse 50. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? <clears throat> uh, this this phrase is notoriously difficult to translate. So say the translators. Uh, but let's go with this one first. Uh, friend, why have you come? Uh, of course, Jesus, Jesus and Judas both know very well why Judas has come. They both know very well. So perhaps Jesus' question emphasizes to Judas his treasonous act. I know why you've come, and you know why you've come. You've come to betray me. You know, everybody, we both know that. Uh, you know that, and I know that. We both, we both know that. Um, now... Um, <clears throat> The saying is notoriously difficult to translate. Um, other translations read this way. Friend, do what you came to do. Do what you came to do. If you're reading an ESV tonight, um, it probably has a footnote, and it footnotes the other translation. And, and we'll, just let our, we'll just let our Greek scholars keep uh, studying the language, and maybe they can clarify some of these things as they continue to try to understand the Greek language. There's, not, there's no textual variant involved here, so that's not in play. It's, it's just very difficult to translate <clears throat> from what I understand. Uh, so... Jesus responds to Judas, friend, uh, why have you come? Um, of course, okay, we know that. The other translation, friend, do what you came to do, is also possible, in which case it is another example of Jesus in control and moving things along. Okay? Do what you do. Well, that's a few hours earlier. What did he say? What you do, do quickly. So, I mean, you could connect this alternate translation up. It sounds parallel to what Jesus told him when he left the Lord's Supper, when he, when he left the uh, Passover meal. What you do, do quickly. So, <clears throat> do what you came to do. Um, Luke records Jesus asking Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Most of us don't remember that, do you? I didn't. I, I didn't remember that. But it's right there in Luke. It's unique to Luke. And so maybe G Jesus must have said that to him as, as he was approaching him. Or immediately after, somewhere in that interchange, Jesus said that. Okay, so um, that's what that's what Luke uh, Luke puts in there for us. So now, how to understand Jesus is addressing Judas as friend is not easy to determine. 
they'd been together for three years. He's one of the twelve. And Judas surely was sharing in the excitement in the early days. You know, and he becomes disappointed because Jesus is not the political Messiah. He's not the king. And uh, those hopes, you know, Judas finally realizes he's never going to be crowned king in Jerusalem and set up this this kingdom. And, And he's disillusioned and he betrays Jesus. So that, that, that transition takes place. But now, don't, you know, hang on to your doctrine of the incarnation. Uh, that Jesus is truly man, correct? He's truly man, and he's truly God. Think about his true humanity. On a non-omniscient, fully human level, did the feelings of friendship exist between Judas and Jesus. And I cannot see how they could not have. Okay? On a fully human level, there was a friendship. Those feelings did exist. And and, and the uh, Old Testament psalm actually says that. You know, my friend has lifted up his heel against me. And David had the same experience, didn't he? I mean, David, ultimately, Joab turned against David. Okay, and so David had the experience of friends that forsook him and betrayed him. And so I, I have little doubt that there was a true sense in, you know, on a human level that Jesus and Judas were friends. Okay, and, and he betrayed him. So it's not impossible that when Jesus makes that statement, friend, why have you come? He is aware that Judas used to be one of his friends. And uh, that, of course, is part of his suffering. Uh, So, um, okay, now, at this point, Peter assaults the high priest's servant. Okay. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come to me? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. Hold on a minute. i got to rehabilitate Peter a little bit here. Hold on. Luke gives us one more very significant detail how this unfolded. So let's uh, go over to Luke 22, verse 49, and uh, we learn something very, very interesting. Okay, verse 48, But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they, plural, said to Jesus, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So, it wasn't just Peter that was right on the verge to strike with the sword. So there's a number of people there with Jesus who are ready 
to engage in a bloody-to-the-death fight. Not just Peter. Now, they asked the Lord, and it appears to me they waited for an answer. <laughs> now, Peter did not wait for an answer. Okay. And Peter went ahead and uh, drew his sword. Then one of them, and Luke obviously knows it was Peter, but Luke leaves out the names. We'll talk about that in a moment. Why does he leave the names out? Only John mentions that it was Peter, by the way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not mention that it was Peter. They all hide Peter's identity. Um, And one of the reasons might be is they're writing, you know, after all of these events, and they're trying to protect the identity of the disciples and the apostles. Uh, Might might be. I I don't know. Um, So there were others there. I have to admit, uh, I was surprised by reading that myself, even though I preached through the Gospel of Luke many years ago, but I had forgotten that um, there was a plural said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Then Peter, then Peter does strike with the sword and cut off his right ear. Okay, well, thank you, Luke. You know, we needed to know which ear was cut off. None of the other accounts mention which ear. It's only Luke that says he, he cut off the right ear. Okay. Van Gogh. <laughs> Van Gogh. He had an ear cut off, right? I just, I, I just broke the ear, and I said, who needs an enemy if you have a friend like him? <laughs> right. Okay, so but Luke tells us it was the right ear, and John tells us the name of the servant was Malchus. So uh, some have said regarding Luke, and I don't know if this is true or not. It might be. When you compare Luke's Gospels to the others, Luke seems to give more medical detail. And if you look at how he describes people that Jesus healed, you will notice he describes them with a little more detail than Matthew and Mark or John do about their condition. You know, that she had this infirmity for 38 years, or, or no, the guy was paralyzed for 38 years, or the woman could not bend up, and there's this kind of detail. And people say, well, that's because he's Luke what? Luke the physician, right. The Apostle Paul refers to him as Luke the doctor or Luke the physician. And medical doctor? Yes. Yeah, medical doctor. He's a doctor. I know. We, we have, we have, uh, but, but she's, she's a chemist. <laughs> uh, but she is. She's she is. Way up there. That's right. <laughs> she really is. Um, but we're talking medical doctor here, Luke, uh, Luke the physician. So some people make that comment about Luke uh, telling us that Peter cut off the, the right ear. So, what was the name that you said? Huh? Malchus. Spell it. Now you're asking for a lot. M-A-L-C-H-U-S. He was the servant. He was the high priest's servant. 
M-A-L-C-H-U-S. It's in your Bible. You, you can find it. I think it's in my notes here somewhere, too. Well, we haven't gotten there yet. So, uh, okay, so... Um, So who are those that surround him? That's what I wanted to talk about next. Luke is specifically vague at this point. Um, uh, let me back up. Yeah, it, he just says, when those around him. Okay, and there's not a textual variant here. See, we're, I'm going to flip back to talk about the text again and translation issues. And I want to show you the other translations. Okay. And I'm going to pick on I'm going to pick on the NIV a little bit. <laughs> okay. And it's a, don't 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 get me wrong, but you see, when those around him, that's what Luke said. He didn't say who they were. Okay. Those around him saw what was going on. ESV. And when those who were around him saw what was going on, New American Standard, when those who were around him saw what was going on, New English Translation, when those who were around him saw what was going on. Now we've hit a phrase that's easy to translate, right? Everybody agrees on the translation of that phrase. I've just given you four popular English versions. They all agree. And, but now NIV says, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen. And so what they've done is they've done some interpretation work for you. Okay, this is a, this is a difference between when you buy a Bible, there's called formal equivalent translations. These four are all formal equivalent translations. And they preserve the ambiguity. See? Who are those who were around him? They leave the text like that. So you, as you read, have to, from the context, figure out that. That would be the same for a Greek reader. person who knew Greek, the ambiguity would be there in the Greek text. And that makes the Bible a little harder to read. Okay? But here, with the, uh, the NIV translation, is a dynamic equivalent translation. And so, they say, we're not going to formally try to formally translate the words, word for word, as best as we can. We are going to do a dynamic translation as to what it really means. Okay? And so all I'm saying is, is you can see it there. So if you haven't understood those kinds of things about translation, this is just a good example to help, help you understand how our Bibles are translated. So, um, and of course, there's a tug of war between uh, accuracy to the original and readability. You know, anytime you translate, you're going to struggle between making it easy to read and yet 
preserving precisely in the original language. And, and that's just, a, you know, but we're just blessed to have multiple translations. You know, you can, sometimes when you, when you can't figure something out, go read the NIV, and you know, the large majority of times, I would say the NIV gets it right, <laughs> all right? I, I, a large majority of times, the NIV gets it right. But, you know... Why is it then that the NIV is the least popular for, uh, you know, like uh, preachers and ministers to recommend as a, what is that word, reference, you know? Least popular? That's what the impression I have. Well, not maybe the NIV has been around a long time and it was by far the most popular modern English translation for a long time. You know, there, there's the ESV has become pretty popular these days. And so if you are an expository preacher, it's hard to... I don't want to be un, I don't want to be unfair. Some people wouldn't agree with me, but if you're an expository preacher, and sometimes you tend to want to talk about meanings of words and things, it's hard to do that from a dynamic equivalent translation. Okay, what so, what do you use mostly? What the New King James, which is the first one on the list here, but but I mean you can use any of these. I'm I'm not I'm not here to say the. ESV is better or worse, and all four of these, and there's others you can use as well. You know, I'm thinking of my family, and it it is good for the great. Yeah. If they open uh, some form of a Bible, whether it's NIV, which is easier to to be understood, you know, it, it depends on their reading level. I I have to admit, in in our culture, I I tend to like to uh, recommend these four here. But I can share an experience. Lot, years ago, I had we were working with a with a uh, uh, a lady, maybe in her I don't know in her thirties, and I was trying to use <laughs> the New King James with her, which is pretty modern English, it is. And I, after a while, I just, I, I, I said, read the NIV. She was not, she was not capable of the sentence structures and those kinds of things that were in the New King James. And I, I just, I just said, read the NIV. So, so what I'm, I'm answering, I'm responding to you, Thelma. If a person has, is somewhat, is fairly highly literate, not highly literate, but high school literacy, I should say. If someone has high school literacy, then, then, you know, the ESV, the ESV is a good translation. It's fairly easy to read and it's pretty much a formal equivalent. You know, I, I like the New American Standard. The later versions of it are very good. So I really sidetracked this here more than, more than I wanted to. But back to what I'm trying to say, who are those who were around him? Okay. Well, the 11 were there. 
But we've asked the question even earlier, were there others at the Passover celebration or not? I know there's at least one more person in that those who were around him. Any of you take a guess who that is? It's going to come up in the Gospel of Mark. I know there's at least one more. The young man that runs away naked, naked, right. There's at least one more. Mark is right. Mark, you got it. You're a Mark also. (laughs) But Mark, we think it's Mark. We're going to study that. But there's an interesting reference to this young man who was also present and and. He ran away, and they laid hold on him, and it's, it's interesting. So that's at least one other person that was present. So I'm, I'm baiting you a little bit and just st- stimulating you and encouraging you to keep knowing, uh, knowing the Scriptures. So you know what? Um, I think it's about we're, we're going to stop. We're not going to get through all of the arrest. Uh, I have some more. I have a page that you don't, but I don't, I don't need to use it. Do you have any comments or questions? I've just been kind of rolling along through these passages, but Marlo's got one. Marlo's got one. Oh yeah, you know, I told her we were going to open up the chat line, so uh, but I needed to set you up with your own microphone so you could repeat the question. Oh yeah. She says, "Question for theology time in the future." Is Judas an example or an exception to the doctrine of election? He was chosen by Christ, but John 18.9 suggests his soul was lost. <laughs> you know, I don't think we're going to do this chat thing anymore. <laughs> you know, um, uh, we'll address that during theology time. I'll, 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 kick, I'll kick that down, uh, down the road. Um, yeah. Okay. So cool. That that's working. Any other any other questions? All right. Let's let's pray. Uh, <clears throat> Lord, once again, we thank you for inscripturating your word, so that we do not have to depend on our memories, Father. Uh, what a wonderful thing that is, and and we can return again and again, and and read your promises uh, that that never uh, are always true and uh, and that you're a God who makes promises and keeps them and we might add to that Lord you make promises and you write them down for us and you keep them so we we are forever grateful Lord we thank you for one another and the fellowship that that we can have here this evening and uh, yes uh, may May you use us to encourage others to lead you, to read your word, and and may we um, be able to defend it and explain it. We we pray in Christ's name, Amen.